Hi, this is the second season of I Hope This Message Finds You Well, a podcast on curating. My name is Chris Ditto, and with me is my friend and colleague Eloise Feetman. In this podcast, we talk to curators about their approach to curating, how they began, and what they love about the profession. Today's episode is with Paul O'Neill. Paul O'Neill is an Irish curator, artist, writer, and educator. He is the Artistic Director of Publix, a curatorial agency and event space with a dedicated library and reading room in Helsinki, Finland. Between 2013 to 17, he was Director of the Graduate Program at the Centre for Curatorial Studies, Bard College. He is also the author of Culture of Curating and the Curating of Culture, published by MIT Press, among other influential publications on curating. Well, the first question is a very simple, basic question we ask all of our guests, and that is, how did you become a curator? And I think in your case, it's especially interesting because I know you you are also an artist and you perhaps started working as an artist. And I was wondering about this shift and perhaps also how artistic practice is still present in your work or how they are interconnected, if you could tell us about that. I usually say that I'm an artist working curatorially and I started saying that maybe in the mid 90s and that was following a perhaps a short period of time maybe working more collaboratively or working working on projects that involved other people and sometimes that might be working with a fellow student in France when I studied in France in Orléans for a year and <clears throat> collaborated with a French artist, François, um, on a number of exhibitions, or it might be working with an organization called Critical Access or, or Random Access. And it had two interchangeable names, which was an organization set up in the early 90s in, in Dublin, in Ireland, from where I, from where I come from. And that was uh, a bunch of artists, activists, curators, people who were certainly looking for arts to have a more meaningful relationship with the world and not just take the form of uh, product or things or things that were to be exhibited. So working with artists and contexts that were placing art in like social welfare offices, in mental health facilities, in outdoor space, uh, but then also thinking about the kind of discursive, the discursive, critical talking as practice, speaking as practice, listening as practice. Uh, and that was very much in the early 90s. And I was very lucky to 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 be a young, younger member of that bunch of bunch of people. So I learned quite a lot from people like Mick Wilson and Martin McCabe, and then later on, people like Maeve Connolly, or but then also people like Morris O'Connell and other other. It was a very very lucky time to be an artist in in Dublin, actually. But I well, lucky. 
But I um, then also, I made a lot of work in the early 90s where I collaborated with survivors of sexual abuse and also worked with issues related to to kind of physical and sexual abuse in uh, particularly in an Irish context, but also looking for other conversations happening elsewhere in the U United Kingdom, in Canada, in Europe and so forth. But so I was very much working with groups of people or trying to find ways to to make the work that I was making as an artist, maybe more meaningful and more connected to other kind of processes of, of working with kids, working with social workers, working with psychologists, working with uh, people coming from the medical profession, people coming from the legal profession. And this was, I was very young then, so I was quite naive and I was still in my tw early 20s. So maybe I wasn't calling it curating them, but it was more like calls, you know, I think maybe the, the dominant term at the time was literal arts or social practice, but terms like participation or social engagements were, were less less kind of common. I mean, the references were, were people like, you know, John Ahern and group material, general idea, Jenny Holzer, Barbara Kruger, you know, all of those usual people, great people. But but I, I did a fine art degree in, in Dublin. I did an undergraduate, I did a Bachelor of Fine Arts and I studied in Dublin. I was born in London. But I, yeah, I had a studio practice for a period, period of time in, in the early 90s as well. I a studio with artists Jared Byrne and Ronan McRae, very cheap rent in Dublin at the time. And I just knew that I needed to leave also, I just knew I needed to leave for a period of time. I knew that it, the, the curator opportunities and the teaching opportunities were were pretty were pretty limited, and then also very hierarchical and also very very turgid and felt a little bit old, maybe. And I I did a lot of residencies, like many artists did in the nineties, when there was very little other opportunity, and also residencies came with kind of stipends and accommodation and production funding and sometimes with publications. And I think maybe I exhausted those opportunities after a few years and I, I ended up setting up an organization called Multiples in Dublin, which was an artist led initiative where we co-produced and exhibited uh, artist editions and multiples from artists in Ireland and also internationally, everybody from Lawrence Wiener to to completely unknown artists and, and even in the 90s Lawrence was perhaps <clears throat> not as not as well known as he was before he he passed away but he 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 was certainly saying saying yes to a lot of things that he might not have been able to say yes to when he was mm -hmm. when, he, when he departed but mm -hmm. yeah so I so that was also an initiative and that enabled me to keep a lot of the conversations alive in a way. I think that when you started the preamble before our conversation around the need for connecting with others and talking to other curators and being in conversation, really that, that was very much part of that shift away from making one's own work into 
collaborating with other other people, other artists, and then also contextualizing the practice uh, in a different way and placing it in conversation or in dialogue with other practices, and then also maybe providing a critical framework for the work that kind of couldn't it couldn't do on its own in a way it couldn't it couldn't um, pre-exist or whatever and then also curatorial processes set up these relations you know you you they demand ways of working with others that you know you can't do it all on your own and and then I think also we start to realize that many artistic practices are 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 ultimately not produced by a single author they're produced by many many different authors no but that i I think for us that uh, that um the networked or the collaborative or also the friendship around the practice of curating and and working with artists is very important i think also in in now you can feel quite lonely sometimes in a funny way we started to define ourselves this is actually kind of a joke with Eloise we realized that in our curatorial practice we have different interests what draws us to this work what kind what interests us most and I would be more of an artist oriented curator in a sense I really enjoy the conversations I love commissioning your work I feel it's a process of learning for me being in conversation with someone and Eloise is very drawn to artworks and spending time with artworks and contemplating their meaning in different contexts and recontextualizing them and so on and this is of course not a strict line even though it sounds like we, we created this dichotomy within the practice but when when looking at uh, your work or as as much as I know of it it seems like you're almost like a curator-oriented curator. <laughs> I wonder if that's something you could respond to. <laughs> of course, I also know from one perspective your work, and that perspective comes from, you know, when I was at university and I started to be a bit more familiar with the term of curating as something I might want to do or something that also framed what I've been already doing, and then I wanted to learn more about it. I went to the library, to an arts library, and I went to the shelf about curating and there were two books. There was this interviews of Hans Ulrich Obrist with curators and this other book, The Curator's Egg, which is a lot more about museology than, than curating, in fact. And I thought, like, who can, who can tell me what I'm, what I'm doing or how I should be doing or what is the contemporary discourse? And I think within your practice, again, as I got to know it, it was very much about excavating what curators are doing in the now and also talking to people. And I think this collaboration and conversations that you mentioned also in relation to your artistic practice is very much there and also added this, say, this knowledge base or a kind of creating a ground for where to start from or or creating also a kind of platform for these conversations within curating. So that's how I came up with that. I'm sorry for sorry for labeling. <laughs> I mean I I I imagine there are many different modes of being a curator or many different models or positions. But I do perhaps agree that there are two dominants methodologies and one is one or methods if you like more, more than a methodology but there's one is working with works and the other is working with practices and then there's maybe a, a third way which is a combination of the two and that is also 
if the outcome of the process that is set in motion by that model or by that method uh, um, accounts for the exhibition as one of the final outcomes, whatever form the exhibition might take. Um, but things in that one experiences as <clears throat> as as being on display or being experienced in exhibition, and I, I so I, I I I probably move between those three different models on a, on a, on, a, on a regular basis. I think I I went through kind of a number of shifts in my own practice as a curator because of different different positions or different contexts in which I was working. I worked in London at London Print Studio for as the gallery curator there for, for two to three years in the early 2000s when I was studying, when I was at the same time studying in Middlesex University. And it was a kind of a, in a way, full-time, part-time position. I, I had responsibility for the whole of the gallery program, exhibition program. But at the same time, my time wasn't being maybe uh, accounted for in terms of like my, the remuneration or the credit or all of these things. So, but it was a really amazing opportunity and I had a really great two to three years, but I set in motion maybe a number of different like thematics or a number of different kind of like curatorial structures to work, to work with. And that enables like quite a lot of like thematic exhibitions, quite a lot of exhibitions with things you know where you you create an essay and the essay has a series of illustrations and these illustrations are artworks and sometimes those artworks might be the culmination of new works that are produced because you're talking to an artist and other times it might be existing work but they're kind of very they're very essay essayistic i would say that the exhibitions but also very much this thematic way of working you know coming up with an overall idea, an overall curatorial structure, and then you you select works to, and you orchestrate a particular narrative around those those works, so kind of storytelling. And then I think I shifted then away from this way of working into more like working with the structures, and the structures then would kind of, in a way, enable lots of different practices often in contradiction to one another, often in disagreement with one another, to kind of coexist within within the within the exhibition process and then coexist within the final exhibition form. And I think that this enabled me to work with a whole range of different artists and in a way opened up opened up my my own limited access to contemporary art into other areas like painting and collage and drawing and 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 mediums that I wouldn't have really maybe engaged with so much uh, as a kind of more thematic essayist curator, which was more trying to find the things which fitted the, the, the narrative that you're trying to kind of tell. And, and then I also, within opening up these, stru these structures of engagement and structures of involvement of others, I also was very invested in this idea of the open the open work or the open structure. So allowing things in that were that were not very good or that collapsed or that failed or that and then just allowing them to kind of to be part of the of the exhibition. And so even though being very self-aware of that, maybe sometimes too self-aware. And then sometimes those things that you allow in 
then become the more in, most interesting parts of some exhibitions because they're they're really like pulling at the edges of the other works. And then I think I shifted away from these open structures into more maybe a combination of those two ways of working, but but focusing very much on on beginning with a conversation with an artist, a dialogue with an artist. And then I think over time, there are certain artists that I'm very invested in working with often. And then there are other artists I'm maybe invested in working with once. And mm -hmm. this is a difference. So there's different kind of paces to those, those dialogues. Uh, working with an artist once for the first time can take, you know, a difference there's a different strain on 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 the, the temporality of the process. Whereas if you're working with an artist over and over and over again, you you know you, there's a kind of a shorthand to that to that dialogue, and and it's maybe possible to do things more quickly together. And then mm -hmm. I think the curator of curators uh, idea is I I also when I lived in France in the nineties for a short period. I, I met like people like Nicola Borio and Hans Ulrich Aubrist and many other curators there, Stephanie Moisden Tremblay and Jerome Sons and uh, Hu Han Ru and all these people who were living in Paris and or at least passing through Paris at the time. It was a very exciting time to 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 be in France, even though it was very difficult to do anything as a young curator even the young artists, you know, there was this moment where there were a lot of so-called relational artists or so-called artists invested in in the exhibition as a space that different kinds of relations could be given voice or given presence or made present or questioned or and then also this bunch of artists from Dominic Gonzalez Forster, Salim Gillick and Pierre Joseph and many others and were very, I felt very much in, inherited the legacy of like people like Felix Gonzalez Torres and, and other artists from the eighties, early nineties who, who were very invested in thinking about the viewer and thinking about the social contract of the experience of art and exhibition. I realized I didn't know very much about the history of exhibitions and I didn't know very much about curating. And so I was using a language that I that that was very familiar to the fields, but also it was a language that that I was unclear as to what these words and terms what they did they meant. So I started to do a lot of research into the histories of curating and looking like way back, looking back to the the world exhibitions of the nineteenth century, looking to back to the birth of the the museum, the Western Museum, I should say. And and so on, and also questions of coloniality and at the time what was called post-coloniality in the in the nineties, rather than decoloniality de or, or or otherwise, those terms were not active really for me in the nineties. And and then I you know went into like you went into all of the libraries here, there, everywhere, and all parts of the world, and there were two or three books, if. If that sitting on a shelf, which was called museum studies and museum mm -hmm. studies was also kind of developed in a way in parallel to this shift towards the discursive within curatorial practice. And then also critique of the museums and critiques of power and authority and so forth. And you can see that not only in the, in the, the shift in conceptual art practices away from the idea towards the, 
the social contract, as I should say. So I started interviewing curators because of the lack of publications about curating. There were lots of publications. I mean, there was that Karsten Schubert one, which which is kind of still everywhere, the curator's egg. But then Karsten Schubert was also doing quite interesting shows, very object-based shows in, in London at the time and in the early 2000s. And then Hans Ulrich started his interviews project. Uh, so so it was clear to me that there was a, there was a particular kind of knowledge that was emerging, which was one, this critique of the museum, and then secondly, this overemphasis on personal personal curatorial narratives. So art curators talking about themselves, just as I'm doing maybe now. So there was a kind of a gap, or there at least there was some there was a kind of a gap between those two discourses for me. So one which was very crit- critical or seemed to be critical of existing structures and existing histories, and the other which was kind of making history, but making history through very kind of dominant uh, subjective kind of narrative approach, storytelling on behalf of the p- person who realized the work. So mm. I so I started interviewing all the people that were being interviewed and then I started to ask different questions and um, maybe also to and then I started publishing and writing not from the perspective of the curator but from the perspective of someone looking at the curatorial projects of others mm-hmm. and, and this 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 was not this was not a common thing to to do in the in the early two two thousand. Certainly not in an Anglo phone context. So so in a way, like we're curating subjects and edu- curating an educational turn and a series of essays that I wrote for Art Monthly in the early two thousands. It was kind of a response to that, and not easy. So even with people like for the with, with people like Rocks Media Collective, who you mentioned earlier. And others that that to 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 ask a curator to write about somebody else is was was also a kind of a new invitation. It wasn't it wasn't like that people were automatically the curators were automatically doing this. They were writing about artists in catalog essays. This was another dominant form and still exists as a dom- as as their dominant form of curatorial writing or curator writing rather than curatorial writing. And then they were also then taking part in conferences, speaking of themselves and their projects, but they weren't other than Hans Ulrich, who was doing it in this very interview oriented way. They weren't exploring the curatorial practices of others and they weren't critiquing them. Um, so mm-hmm. I think this started to, to, to become my practice in a way, and then also started to become embedded in the the exhibition making practice and it started to become embedded in how I thought about institutions and how I thought about networked relational uh, practices and, and so forth. I have one more question, yeah, which yeah. is more, it's not so much a question or reflection. I wrote down two words when you were talking about your early curatorial practice and those are things that fail and collapse. And I've been thinking about this myself for a very long time. And not only as, you know, you mentioned it in relation to curating that, you know, sometimes artworks would not, how to allow for failure into the exhibition. But I also wonder, I've been thinking about this for myself, like how to allow for failure in curatorial practice. 
And what does that mean? Also in relation to the professionalization of the field and also in relation to responsibilities that we hold. Because, you know, what, what, what does curatorial... I feel like in curatorial practice there is very little space for not only allowing for failure but maybe admitting that for various reasons but also you know it's just in terms of the kind of power structures monetary structures and responsibilities that maybe are on you as a curator like how can we talk about failure and collapse within the curatorial I don't know where this question is going but I just had to know down these two two words I think I think the 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 idea of collapse or failure within within some of the exhibition pro- more so the exhibition projects was very much about thinking about failure not as not as a kind of an end point but as mm. more like a kind of like threshold of of learning or something or i'm not really comfortable with that and and i don't mean like morally uncomfortable if i'm morally uncomfortable that's out but if it's 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 more if if it's like it doesn't really fit with with my kind of taste or it doesn't really fit with what i was thinking when when asking an artist to respond to the invitation and then just allowing it to you know if they're comfortable, are they? Are you? You know, you really ask, ask, have to ask that question. Are you truly comfortable with allowing this to be exhibited? And if they are, then then you go with that. And and I I I tend to lean. I'm somewhere in between this now because I don't. I feel like I've gone through this process of allowing a lot of things into exhibitions that that perhaps I'm still uncomfortable with. Yeah. So, so, but then there are other things that that I've become more comfortable with, like color. Like my shows are very colorful, you know. I but in the '90s and 2000s, like they were just like black and white. They were just like pieces of paper stuck to the wall, or they had a different kind of aesthetic because I was very invested in this conceptual dematerialized exhibition and more about the ideas rather than the form. And and I think, you know, I was more interested in kind of like the 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 totality of the, of the exhibition rather than the individual components i also didn't want to think about trying to speak to those individual components so i also kind of had a, had a rule for myself that i would not speak about the artworks that i would only speak about why they were why they were brought together and really make that decision that artists can speak to their own work in in a way so in making that decision then you you talk about the works around the works or you talk in relation to them or or there there's a kind of more circuitous relationship with the individual components within the exhibition but i think also the the process of allowing things in that are maybe collapse or or, or, or uncomfortable with other works was also kind of maybe a self-conscious critique of the curator as an arbiter of taste in a, in a way, but at the same time orchestrating a certain a certain way in which these good and bad objects could coexist together and be more interested in that uh, rather than the individual good or bad objects. 
Uh, I don't know whether mm. that's articulating it so clearly, mm. but when I started thinking about exhibitions as as whole and that they have different groundings and different planes of interaction and different modes of artistic labor and different modes of, uh, of artistic practices that respond to the exhibition in different ways. So thinking about the background as that which surrounds you or thinking about the middle ground as something you interact with, but only partially like the lighting, the design of the exhibition, the gallery furniture, the floor, the ceiling, all of these things, all of these, all of these middle ground uh, activities and many artists make middle ground works and then foregrounded works being being the kind of objects themselves or then sometimes but also sometimes the the middle ground becomes the foreground like a tv monitor can sometimes be more dominant than the thing which you're experiencing on the monitor you know so there's there's very i was very interested in like what are the where does the work end like what you know does the work end without the technology or does the work end with the technology or you know when a painting is not on a canvas but instead applied to the wall then is the wall the work or is the painting the work or is the paint why is the paint so important then if the work is the wall you know so all of these all of i think maybe these the the these became very obsessive things to attend to to and and then there were so many really great artists that were, were were making work that very much engaged with the architectonics of 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 the exhibition and the architectonics of of space more more widely. So in a way, often working with the, the background artists or or a core core bunch of artists to really define what the exhibition would look like feel like how you would think about the viewer in relation to that and then once once that that was kind of set in place certainly with exhibitions like tonight or coalesque or la la land that 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 lots of other voices lots of other contradicting practices can kind of enter into those spaces and play with them or or rub up against them or or be be in correspondence with them in a way that's that's is a little bit more fluid than trying to select works and giving all the energy to 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 this. I'm also not a kind of a list kind of curator. I can't do this like I have a list of artists and then I and I have to do it one by one and and then I go, okay, they said yes, that's great. They're gonna do that. Now what are we gonna do? And maybe or maybe they have an idea. Maybe they say, Oh, I know this artist and also a lot of the projects certainly before now have have really emerged like this so an artist would know another artist or know another artist or know another artist or no artist or no of another artist and then you you allow this kind of it's not it's it is friendship certainly but i think it's more like allowing just these emotion emotion emotive traces into the uh, into the the process and mm-hmm. and sometimes that that's a dead end and sometimes that's becomes uncomfortable in in the in the sense that oh this is not this is this is totally there that's this does not look like what i was thinking this is this is like not a good artist or this is like <laughs> or this is like you know really problematic or yeah, yeah. or or they're or they're not in a good headspace at this particular moment this is not the right time because time mm-hmm. is also a very big part of it like sometimes you, you an artist can make 
so much, so many good works, and then you approach, and it's just the wrong time. And you know, you immediately know. I mean, I I feel like I I think I'm instinctual enough now, but I immediately know. Oh, this is really not the moment mm-hmm. to to annoy them. And and then other times they're they're a bit more open, or they have more time, or they have the, the somehow there's a clarity with with within what they're doing, or there's a playfulness that's that's maybe needed. So. I don't know. It's all. It's it's not so always clear. But I am always thinking of how to mess it up once it's once it starts to look clear in 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 my head, like what what it could look like. Then I I try to think about ways of messing that up. And I feel like the invitation is really quite uh, something in your practice. Actually, like I was uh, noticing in coalesce. Like you invited a curatorial duo to then curate within B&B. Yeah, and and then how um, – and I wondered if maybe – well, uh, like if you could talk more about a coalesce as an exhibition, but then also that in sort of invitation of inviting other practices. And then maybe you could talk about uh, para-hosting, which is uh, something that's very important to publics now. Because uh, coalesce, I, I just want to – quickly add is that like really exciting for myself to see and to get to know more because like it I feel like there's uh different connections to what we're trying to do at Shimmer but you know you've really been working on the, uh, on the, well at the time I think it was, it was the first show of this was 2005 uh, I think maybe uh early 2000s yeah, yeah so it's 20 like, 20 years it, ago yeah yeah, so it's like it's very exciting to see also like what is possible with like a durational, like expansive exhibition that also has multiple different lives in different locations. I want, yeah, if you could talk about uh, Coalesque in particular, how how that came to be and how did it work actually? It's, it's I mean, as an exhibition model, it's, it's like a, it's an accumulative exhibition model, which means that it's it, it doesn't have a final form in a way. It doesn't it, it culminates at certain moments or it it congeals at certain moments or it coalesce coalesces at certain moments, but it's it's accumulative. So it's it, it's about setting something in motion in a way. And it began at London Prince Studio um, Gallery. Um, with three artists, with Eduardo Padilla, Catherine Bohm, and Jaime Gilly. And the original idea was to um, convert the gallery into an exhibition. So thinking about when does a gallery become an exhibition and when, does it, when, when, when are those uh, parameters completely like broken down or or collapsed in a way so we so we converted london print studio gallery into this kind of print it became a print three-dimensional print work it became and we used the facilities at london print studio to print lots of material that were pasted on the wall given away as posters on the windows and so forth so we converted the space into this kind of like environment in a way and uh, or, and then in in the happening within the environment if you want to think about environments as and happenings as coexisting as historically was was people coming and just 
participating in some way by taking the posters away, very Felix and Flawless Tories again, but then also like sitting around, lounging around. Eduardo Badia had these had these print works on fabric which people could sit on and so forth. So this was very much about convert like converting a gallery into an exhibition and then the exhibition becomes an environment within which something happens. But then the the happening is not really defined other than other than when people are there and interacting in some ways. And we we agreed at that point when we started the show that we would let's just let's just keep doing it and find ways of doing it differently. And then when the opportunities came up if you know three is then four, so me and the three of them, and then if they had if opportunities came up to do this show elsewhere, we would we would find a way of making it happen. So we ended up getting another invitation to do it in London at Redux, which then had had a structure of like four weeks. And so I invited four different curatorial groups to respond to the environment. So the happening was the opening of the exhibition, but with now with more artists like Lothar Gotts and, and Stefan Nikolaev and Oriana Fox and many others. But then we set up the environment and then we invited other curators in like Temporary Contemporary, built this very beautiful poker poker game set and they, they curated exhibitions of artists playing poker together. Then they then there was other Sarah Pierce brought people in to interview like you're doing like exactly like this. But then she was staying with me in London and she would just take things from my bookshelves and come into the to the gallery and it's very much a gallery even though it was also an apartment and then she would ask people to talk about the book that she brought in and and it would be a book that she think she would think that people like elizabeth price or jason coburn uh, and others who were some of the people that she invited in to just have a conversation at, and then she recorded them and then they became a work of sarah's and then dave beach and mark hutchinson did a launch of a publication called the first condition and so you know these in a way, the exhibition became space for other other curatorial initiatives to to be in conversation with with the environment, the coalescent environment. And then we had some other invitations to do something in Barcelona and then in Sligo, in Model and Nylons Art Centre, which I think was perhaps the, the moment we invited B&B in. And they were doing quite interesting research into what was then and perhaps still is now the former former Eastern Europe. So they were working with, they were excavating and working with a lot of artists who were coming from uh, post-Soviet context and uh, looking at the reality of kind of uh, this post-89 generation and this post-89 phenomena within, within, Europe, within Europe in terms of, you know, everything from the emergence of Europe to uh, border control to a new kind of narrative around nationalism to uh, Ursula Biemann looking at land rights and migration to uh, Tajak Pogakar looking at sex trafficking, human trafficking, um, but also the rights of, of, of sex workers. So it was all a very a different kind of approach to research in terms of cohabitation or coalescence. So, so I invite Sophie and Sarah, Sophie Hope and Sarah Carrington, our B&B, 
Airbnb um, and they curated the film program in a way, the cinema program sometimes. And this was kind of integrated into the exhibition and integrated into the middle ground, integrated into the background. And then we also had a lot of screenings of those works. So, so in a way, it's a very long project. So they're, they're maybe going into the, some of these details is not so helpful, but at the same time, it's, you know, it, every time the invitation to do something with Coalesque emerges, it's, it's, it's about bringing like additionality, bringing more in more and more and more and more. What happens when more and more and more gets brought in? And then when we did it at Smart Projects based in Amsterdam, there was about 88 artists and lots of events and projects and da, da, da. And then this was, you know, heavy, heavy. Now, I mean, heavy infrastructure, like, you know, all of these artists that you start working with for a 10 year period, they're now like they're doing they're, they They've got gallery representation or some of them are stopped making art or or some of them are very busy or so. So also so coalesce also responds to those conditions that sometimes certain artists are more dominant within coalesce and other times they're they're the certain artists that are a little bit more like not so visible within the structure and it is accumulative so everything kind of stays in in a way or 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 a version of something so it becomes this like archive of itself it starts to kind of accumulate positions accumulate practice it also becomes a site of production so sarah's audio recordings that she did in london in 2005 four or five four i think it was and they then end up becoming like a series of works which are then exhibited on monitors and on headphones and in publications in smart project space and then sarah kick starts a new process where she starts interviewing her students at die dutch art institutes for another project on coalescence and making a video work in collaboration so so the work the you know, it starts to have all of these other things, tentacles, and I'm really interested. And I think I learned that also from Sarah, in a way, this idea of the exhibition as a site of production, not a site of production, which you see as an experience within the exhibition, but as a space within which certain kinds of production can happen because of the exhibition, not in the exhibition, but can come out of the exhibition. And now after that show, we just decided that we needed to focus on maybe the archive and looking at the archive and the archive became, we started with thinking of it, it not, not, not hiring photographers to photograph the show, but then, but, but uh, that artists would make their own documentation and then we would accumulate all of this material. And of course, you know, pre 2007, you know, the iPhone is invented in 2007. The digitalization of, of, of imagery and digitalization of exhibitions starts to be quite different from 2007. So pre-2007, everything is slides and photographs and transparencies and, you know, this kind of material, even drawing, drawings uh, become a kind of a part of your, the archive. So, so we kind of started to accumulate or started to accumulate all of that, but then gave up on it. It was be such a monster. You know, it's also expensive, expensive. And it wasn't, you know, three artists hanging out in London Print Studio doing an environment to 88 artists coming from different parts of the world to exhibit together and make new work, a lot of new work, because it was also a site of production, like Richard Venlet did the entire floor, for example, in, in Smart. So we, we realized that it was now 
kind of into this space of overproduction and 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 we didn't want this was not what, what we kind of collectively wanted to it to become but in terms of like the process like you know artists have certain parameters that they're asked to work within or they they create their own parameters and sometimes that sometimes the compromise or the agonism uh, between works on the walls or the folding over of like artists wants to put work on top of each other and things like that that's often a space of negotiation and sometimes that negotiation goes really well yeah. and other times it's 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 very very uncomfortable and sometimes it's it's people falling out uh, mm. and and but this falling out or these disagreements become we try and process them and we try and find ways of looking at what is it that's so upsetting? Like, what is it that's so upsetting with another artist being more dominant than their work and so forth? And often, I think these, it comes down to input, it comes down to investment, it comes down to time and financial input. Like, I've spent all this time doing this work and then somebody comes and just, you know, sprays all over it. And, yeah. and it's that, and it's not, it's, but then it's, it's, but is the work better? Does it look better? And well, it's kind of more interesting, or at least it's like, I wouldn't have done that. You know, there's like, it becomes the coalescence or the cohabitation becomes different. But also like, I think the kind of uh, negotiation or conversation between the artists on how their works actually intervene or come into dialogue or whatever um, is really interesting. Like that is something that I, I think a lot about with Shimmer, but also like, what I understand with Coalesque is that actually nothing leaves actually like everything that things enter and then they at the end of the exhibition period everything leaves together is that right uh, the, the, no the the background the middle ground because it's either site responsive or yeah. it's it's infrastructure to show other works yeah uh, that that all it gets recycled basically it's all recycled back into becoming the infrastructure for other works or it's it's recycled and then the works which are foregrounded works so works that arrive in the gallery as artworks and cannot be altered by the process of exhibition or being exhibited they leave and then they go to go back to the to the artists but there are there are very few foreground works in coalesque or there have been very few works in coalesque that are of that nature so there are often works that are incorporated or built into the exhibition environment or they are film works which you know they just exist as files or if they're like a series of small paintings by william mckeown for example they went back to the artists at the time and yeah so there's very few works like that. In a way, it's not this like the transport costs for Coalesque are quite small, even though yeah. the show is very big. So it's also it enables because a lot of the work, a lot of the labor, a lot of the, the is is the presence of artists working with each other and, and sometimes being or, or sometimes there's a schedule, you know, where. Eloise comes in for two days and does their thing. And then Chris comes in, and does their thing. And then it's, you know, and then someone comes in and goes, oh, no, that, I can't do my thing. So I have to do something else. Or, But we usually have something very, very, there is a plan. 
and yeah. the plan has been agreed upon and then and then some people are like so you know very busy so they can't commit so much and other people have time and they they have two weeks to install you go okay well you've got two weeks let's make let's take over like 10 walls or something or but mm-hmm. uh yeah it is it does accumulate artists and accumulates works and but then sometimes sometimes it's it's maybe not possible to to, to show everything and so forth so uh, also what I find really interesting uh, looking at your work is that also there are often artworks that return in different exhibitions, like Eduardo Padala's uh, sleeping bag, I noticed. And, I, and I, I was wondering if you could talk about that in particular because, you know, I like that, uh, that it, from what I, I, I imagine is that, that this work is not yet finished for you in a, like in a way like this there's still work to be done to get to know this work or what can the work do for different exhibitions and I think um sometimes it feels as curators that like maybe you're, you're it's okay to work with the same artist for other shows but no you're not necessarily can you show the same work in different contexts and I really love that this particular work actually um also the work itself but also what you're doing with it and I maybe could you uh, say something about that Eduardo's sleeping bags have been shown in I think all of the coalesques and they are in a way the most pragmatic middle grounds because they can be rolled up they're soft and then they can be rolled out and they can they also they're sculptural so they can occupy space in so many different ways they're also incredibly beautiful when you when you when you come in contact with them and when you feel them and you use you see that it's made they're made up of different materials and they also have these texts which are stitched into them so so they're i don't know there's 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 always like something new to to experience with them. And then also people behave differently with them. You know, people get inside them, people sit inside them, people push them, people roll them up. You know, it's, I, I like that they have this kind of continuation of like Ligia Clark or Ligia Pape kind of vibe to them. And, and, and Eduardo is very much in dialogue with those, with those artists and Pelo Chica and others and, so in a way, there are a number of reasons he often, but then with, with, uh, we are the center in, in Bard, Bard at, uh, college. When I curated that show, I, there's a lot of windows in the museum, the Hessel Museum, a lot of windows, which it's quite a bright part of the world, upstate New York. So I kind of wanted to filter the light or something that filtered the light so that the light and the seasons would become in a way part of the exhibition but by just allowing the lights in wasn't really a sufficient way of doing that so we commissioned eduardo to to maybe design a kind of works this out of this kind of netting material um that would filter the light and that the light and the colors of the netting would enter the, the exhibition and become part part of that. And and then we had a piece with Falca Pisano, which was a critique of Shalida sculptures that was installed um, in front of the a Franz West sculpture. And so in a way they're like very kind of, they're kind of somewhat weird, strange binary, binary, non-binary kind of juxtaposition. And 
Harold's, or sorry, Eduardo proposed to have the sleeping bags there as a way of like sitting with these two sculptures. So, so they kind of returned because he asked and it mm -hmm. wasn't that I invited those specific mm -hmm. works back in. And I quite, and I, and I, again, this is a space of collapse. Like I could, I had already, or we had already asked Mary Heilman for, for, for a land of some of her sunny side chairs to be part of the show. So there was already some middle ground works that were going to be quite dominant. And then Yasmina Sibic had, had, had designed her own kind of like seating sculptures. So there were works already that had this kind of middle ground aspect to them in We Are The Centre. So Eduardo's was just an, in a way another middle ground. And they also have this very kind of poetic relationship in that show with with William McKeown's wallpaper work, the cuckoo wallpaper work, and also three of William's paintings. And William was alive when Eduardo's sleeping bags and his uh, small paintings were shown together in Sligo. And there's some great documentation of William kind of like Willie um, installing his paintings next to the to Lawrence Wiener happenstance, happenstance with all due intent wall text and and then Eduardo sleeping back sitting on the floor so there's something quite poetic that uh, William's not no longer with us and he he so he no longer alive and he I was quite interested in maybe bringing them back together again somehow William and Eduardo were both kind of looking at queer abstraction in, in, in different ways in their in their work so I quite liked, we talked about having these like two queer bodies kind of coming back together again, but, but in a different context. So somehow this, this was kind of also part of the more emotive side of the, the thinking. So Eduardo sleeping bags, the exact sleeping bags that were in Sligo 10 years previously were shown alongside William's paintings in upstate New York exactly 10 years later. And one of them is alive and one of them's not alive. And I, they're also a different dynamic within that relationship. And then also the, certainly my thinking around William's work and also my thinking around Eduardo's work has changed quite, quite a lot and has been transformed by working with the material and working with, with them as artists. And I think what Eduardo's sleeping bags and also his, his practice more widely does is, is that it's it really brings out this kind of distinction between the work when it's just artwork and the work when it's exhibited and how the work in exhibition completely transforms everything else around it, but also that the object itself, the thing itself becomes transformed and transformative. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And then I, yeah, there, there are certain works that kind of pop up every now and then within within the across exhibitions not not so often but uh, it does happen and i'm quite open to that and if something something works in one exhibition why wouldn't it work in, a, in another exhibition and uh, and then also it's it takes for me uh, like I, I don't know sim maybe similar to shimmer knowing knowing the great work that you do it's I really have to know something quite well to 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 work with it. I have to kind of have an have I have to know what I feel about it, or and even my feelings 
or I, I have no idea how I feel. That's also enough. But but yeah. I have to have, there has to be something, I have to have done a little bit of work beforehand, mm-hmm. research, go deep, think about it a lot, look at it hard, look at it different, differently, spend a lot of time w- with it before I'm comfortable enough to 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 show it or exhibit mm-hmm. it or be be in conversation with it. So in a way, the return of old friends with say Eduardo sleeping bags or the return of old friends such as Williams paintings are like kind of a familiarity, but they're also the exhibition allows for kind of new thinking and and, and having a have it going on another date together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, to- I, I totally appreciate that. I think it's also what makes exhibition making so exciting, I think, to be able to um, revisit old friends in different spaces and also, like, I, I, I also what I liked, I mean, I didn't see the exhibition, We Are the Centre, but I've seen the documentation, is is the uh, actually that particular view of Volker Pisano's work and then the Franz West sculptures, and I could imagine myself in that environment kind of like the backgrounding, foregrounding that you're talking about in many of your exhibitions. So the Franz West sculpture is outside of the exhibition. Like it's you have to look at it through a window, through the the the, the, the sort of filtering. Eduardo's, Eduardo's uh, curtains. Yeah. yeah, I love that, and I, I and I also like also like it's really nice to also like really um, spend time with your work actually to then also see like oh well the the background, middle ground, foreground or that you're interested in it like comes in all of in all your shows in different ways and how like as an audience because uh, I often one like to pretend to be the audience in my exhibitions like you know like practice you know think about sight lines and how would my body feel if I was in the show and I do that when I'm looking at other exhibitions and I get really excited (laughs) but what's the point of bringing the audience up yeah the audience uh, yeah I would love to to talk uh, a bit about publics actually because you've mentioned like viewership and audience and and um and publics is your current I mean, I notice on your website that it's uh, under, um, it's considered a project, but you wouldn't call pro- uh, Publix a project, right? Like this is an organization, would you call it an organization or an institution? Like it's a library, it's, uh, it has many, it's a resource, it's many different, many different things. I mean, Publix is, it is a curatorial project in a way, calling it a curatorial project allows it to fail. allows it to collapse so you know also emphasizing that maybe it won't be around forever it won't last forever curatorial projects even if they're cumulative and durational and evolving sometimes they have rest moments or sometimes they go away for a while and so forth so in a way it is a curatorial project that tries to bring different publics different audiences different modes of participation together over time so both imaginary and real publics so i'm very interested in how the exhibition does that you know that the strangers and the so-called general audience or people that's that that's are being entertained or wanting to be entertained but then might have a different experience coexist with publics that have a relationship with the work or are invested in the field of artistic production and so forth. So I'm very interested in that. 
but I'm also interested in how when having different audiences and different publics for different events or different moments that it creates a different kind of effort, a different kind of like space of attention every time because you can't assume anything. You can't assume that's that we're all speaking to the same kind of like queer feminist agenda and when we're using those terms, for example. But also it is an organization. I mean, there Publix is an organization. It has currently three full-time members of staff and it has two paid interns for want of a better term but i think they're more like we have a librarian who's one of our interns is now our, our librarian was an intern now is our librarian and doing great work with the library and very invested in activating the library now that we can post mm. post covid or well post post covid yes. whatever whatever moment we're at in relation to the pandemic, but um, so people can gather and people can use the books and people can gather to, to read together. And so that's very active part of our organization. And then we're also, we spend a lot of time mapping out what we would do across a whole year. So in a way, organizing our time in relation to our publics and in relation to our existing strands of our program. And then we also spend a lot of time as an organization fundraising and trying to establish new partners, try to to kind of maintain old partners, old relationships, networks and so forth. So this is also part of us as an organization. And then we're also an organization that kind of wants to become an institution. And I and and I we want we're very invested in instituting and that 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 means kind of growth. That means being able to grow a little bit. I'm not sure currently whether it's yet possible to do that economically, uh, structurally, in terms of the context with where we're we are currently in, in in Finland, in Helsinki, in the Baltic region, and so forth. I'm not sure if it's completely possible to grow, but we're trying, and we have been pushing that. So we have grown from you know having one funder to now having maybe six funders, then having like maintained uh, two full-time members of staff to mostly to a year interns, plus now a third uh, curator of learning. So we're also invested in working with what we're calling public suits, which would also be part, become part of our advisory board and so forth. We also have a board structure, so we have six to eight members of our boards that are also helping us develop the organization into an institution. And, you know, becoming an institution is is maybe it's important that, you know, as an organization, if the organization falls apart, then what what's left behind? And if the organization you know, kind of unravels or, or, or disintegrates or goes into, into, becomes part of other organizations. This is also fine, but, but then what does, what do, does that organization leave behind in terms of the institution? So it would be really important for me, although not knowing whether it's yet impossible, yet possible to be able to hand over publics to someone else to do something else with it, with the curatorial project, completely different, maybe. This is the maybe the shift from organization to institution that 
that is perhaps very difficult within the current context, financially, economically, socially, and so forth. But it is a desire, a desire of ours. And then with the para hosting program, we, as an organization, try to have some flexibility in our schedules and in our resources to allow for spaces of other for other organizations to enter into our program and that we would support those other organizations to realize certain projects or events or and that we would treat them equally as our own that we don't own them but we 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 treat them very much as part of our program there is no hierarchy they're not like lesser or more than our program and then and we and different time and and then it also brings in different publics then it also brings in different curatorial ideas uh, some of which may be lesser or more important to to us and then it also it's it's a little bit like a residential model of of curating like you end spending time with people for a short period of time or longer period of times like with chimmer we, we we you were on our mind for 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 over a year and just being on your mind is is sometimes maybe enough. And we just started last week with Latitudes in Barcelona and they came here with Laia Estruk who did a performance and that's kickstarting a, a process of hoping to do a number of different things with them um, as part of our, our program. And in this case, you know, and like with Shimmer, we we kind of seed fund or we'd find a way of like seed funding the projects and then mm-hmm. And then looking at what the parameters are and yeah, start a moment of like being in dialogue and being in proposing together. But I think that the para hosting, you know, in terms of like curatorial projects, which have their, their lifespan, I think it's, it's been a really great testing ground for the parameters of what, what we can do as an organization and what we allow ourselves to be in conversation with. But I also think that it's, it's, it places quite a strain on on the organization financially and then also in terms of our labor and our time and our our abilities to move from being with one group to being with another group or to being you know it's quite it, yeah. it kind of takes its toll and then also there are there are different expectations which different para guests have and we also have to be careful in a way to look after ourselves and mm-hmm. to look after the organization that we have, you know, built together. And also that's we've inherited from Checkpoint Helsinki, which is the organization that we, we took on and became publics that myself and Elisa Savanto kind of have been developing as publics. But I think like I, I, I think para hosting is, is a kind of a way of critiquing care as as the kind of dominant term to define what being together is and in a way it's 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 introducing other approaches to being together you know like being together with strangers or what are what's what are what is what is what is it that's lacking what is it that's that's not taking place that should be taking place what can't you do at this particular moment that you want to do like what are the gaps in in possibilities and and this is this is a different way of thinking about looking after and being with others than taking care because it's something that you feel like needs attention and needs 
affection and needs protection and so forth. So in a way, power hosting is, is, is not so much about caring. It's really about hosting. It's about hosting whoever comes in the door. And sometimes you might not care for those people or their ideas, but you can still host them and you can still mm-hmm. spend time together and, and look after and attend to each other. Uh, mm-hmm. But it has to be reciprocal. And self-care is not reciprocal. Self-care is about the individual and about making sure that the boundaries are are very clear between you and me. And power hosting is not that. Power hosting Mm. is much more messy and it's much more entangled. And in a way, you know, it's not it's not always that like it can be so like amicable and friendly, like with Shimmer and and Publix. There's there was a kind of really cozy synergy which began with, you know, our, our both of us wanting to work with Gordon Hall and bring Gordon to Europe and so forth and show Gordon's work and spend time with Gordon. And then Gordon became an excuse for us to spend time together and so on and so forth. So so this is this is also, you know, this is not about caring for ourselves in this process. It's about like opening it out to what what could we do with, yeah. with Gordon <laughs> and what would Gordon want to do with us and so forth. So, yeah, I think thing is also a critique of self-care. So when, when people have or when organizations have, have expectations to be hosted, to be, to be power hosted, that doesn't fit with this idea of reciprocity or dialogue or, or messiness then it starts to question why we're doing it in, in the first place when people just want the space or people just want the resources or or they're they're not thinking of us when approaching publics to be part of the power hosting program. They're not thinking about why publics, they've never been here, but they want to do something at public. Well, why do you, like, they've never spent time with us. They Like all of these basic kind of i don't know like methodologies start to come 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 into into question so i think we're we're a little bit at that moment where we're we're asking ourselves you know what works with power hosting and what doesn't work and and is it is it is it is it a question of translatability or is it a question of it's run its course or 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 do we do do we do less power hosting and and maybe it's now become a more integral part of, of everything we do rather than it being something that's somehow separate to, to what we do. In the next episode, we interview Zipora elders with whom we delve into the personal and imaginative realm of curating and her approach to navigating institutions. If you have feedback, would love to receive your email at I hope this message finds you well at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at I hope this message and find us on SoundCloud under the same handle. Our jingle was by the artist duo Momo No Ez, and our sound engineer is always Nick Thomas. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm going to have that much of a